Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Men Who Murdered Mohammed" by Alfred Bester. This is first published in FNSF, October 1958. Uh, FNSF being the magazine of uh, fantasy and science fiction. Um, probably Anthony Boucher was editor. I don't remember at this time, but uh, maybe not. It's it's pretty late. The um, great thing about this story is it needs to be read more than once to understand what's going on. I think. But we can't read it. It's too long. But I'd love for you to read uh, the opening, Eric, and then we'll come back and talk about why everybody should delve in. Oh, yeah, they should. This is... <laughs> this is a... It's a... Never mind. <laughs> no advertisement. The men who murdered Mohammed. There was a man who mutilated history. He toppled empires and uprooted dynasties. Because of him, Mount Vernon should not be a national shrine, and Columbus, Ohio, should be called Cabot, Ohio. Because of him, the name of Marie Curie should be cursed in France, and no one should swear by the beard of the prophet. Actually, these realities did not happen because he was a mad professor. Or, to put it another way, he only succeeded in making them unreal for himself. Now, the patient reader is too familiar with the conventional mad professor, undersized and overbrowed, creating monsters in his laboratory which invariably turn on their maker and menace his lovely daughter. This story is about that sort of make-believe man. It's about Henry Hassel, a genuine mad professor in a class with such better-known men as Ludwig Boltzmann, see Ideal Gas Law, Jacques Charles, and André-Marie Ampère, 1775 to 1836. Everyone ought to know that the electrical ampere was so named in honor of Ampere. Ludwig Boltzmann was a distinguished Austrian physicist, as famous for his research on blackbody radiation as ideal gases. You can look him up in Volume 3 of the Encyclopedia Britannica, B-A-L-T to B-R-A-I. Jacques-Alexandre Césaire Charles was the first mathematician to become interested in flight, and he invented the hydrogen balloon. These were real men. They were also real mad professors. Ampère, for example, was on his way to an important meeting of scientists in Paris. In his taxi, he got a brilliant idea of an electrical nature, I assume, and whipped out a pencil and jotted the equation on the wall of the handsome cab. Roughly, it was dh equals ipdl over r squared, in which p is the perpendicular distance from capital P to the line of the element dl, or dh equals i sine phi dl over r squared, this is sometimes known as Laplace's law, although he wasn't at the meeting. Anyway, the cab arrived at the Académie. Ampère jumped out, paid the driver, and rushed into the meeting to tell everybody about his idea. Then he realized he didn't have the note on him, remembered where he'd left it, and had to chase through the streets of Paris after the taxi to recover his runaway equation. Sometimes, I imagine, that's how Fermat lost his famous last theorem, although Fermat wasn't at that meeting either, having died some 200 years earlier. Or take Boltzmann. 
Giving a course in advanced ideal gases, he peppered his lectures with involved calculus, which he worked out quickly and casually in his head. He had that kind of head. His students had so much trouble trying to puzzle out the math by ear that they couldn't keep up with the lectures, and they begged Boltzmann to work out his equations on the blackboard. Boltzmann apologized and promised to be more helpful in the future. At the next lecture, he began, Gentlemen, combining Boyle's law with the law of Charles, we arrive at the equation PV equals P sub zero, V sub zero, parent one plus AT, close parent. Now, obviously, if S from A to B equals F of X, DX, the phi, function of A, then PV equals RT and S sub V is a function of X, Y, Z, DV equals zero. It's as simple as two plus two equals four. At this point, Boltzmann remembered his promise. He turned to the blackboard, conscientiously chalked two plus two equals four, <laughs> and then breezily, then breezed on, casually doing the complicated calculus in his head. Jacques Schall, the brilliant mathematician who discovered Schall's law, sometimes known as Gay-Lussac's law, which Boltzmann mentioned in his lecture, had a lunatic passion to become a famous paleographer. That is, a discoverer of ancient manuscripts. I think that being forced to share credit with Gay-Lussac may have unhinged him. He paid a transparent swindler named Vrain Lucas 200,000 francs for holograph letters purportedly written by Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, and Pontius Pilate. Shall, a man who could see through any gas, ideal or not, actually believed in these forgeries, despite the fact that the maladroit Frère Lucas had written them in modern French on modern notepaper bearing modern watermarks. Shall even tried to donate them to the Louvre. Now, these men weren't idiots. They were geniuses who paid a high price for their genius because the rest of their thinking was otherworld. A genius is someone who travels to truth by an unexpected path. Unfortunately, unexpected paths lead to disaster in everyday life. This is what happened to Henry Hassel, professor of applied compulsion at Unknown University in the year 1980. Nobody knows where Unknown University is or what they teach there. It, is, it has a faculty of some 200 eccentrics and a student body of 2,000 misfits, the kind that remain anonymous until they win the Nobel Prize or become the first man on Mars. You can always spot a graduate of UU when you ask people where they went to school. If you get an evasive reply like state or, oh, a freshwater school you never heard of, you can bet they went to unknown. Someday, I hope to tell you more about this university, which is a center of learning only in the Pickwickian sense. Having given us background about a special notion of mad professor and introduced Henry Hassel and unknown university at which he is a teacher, the story goes on to tell us about this fellow who comes home from class one day, campus one day and finds his wife in the arms of another man. <laughs> Being a mad professor, 
instead of just dismembering both of them, actually, the story has the narrator says it's focused on the wife, um, which he could do because he's an athletic 190-pound strapping fellow. Um, Henry Hessel, being a genius, goes to his laboratory and in a rage, he invents, such being his mind, we're told, a time machine. <laughs> he takes a, uh, a revolver out of his drawer, goes back and kills the grandfather of his wife, figuring that will get rid of her. The time machine he invents has an automatic recall function. He winds up back in his laboratory. He walks out, and there is his wife still in the arms of this fellow. What Henry proceeds to do is go to, to more and more killing. He looks up a, uh, a professor of uh, applied uh, time from UU again and is told that um, you, you need to do something significant, that you can't just change a little bit of time. It's got to be something big. So he goes and decides to, to kill um, George Washington and uh, a number of other famous people, including Mohammed. As if you read the story carefully, you'll notice he's getting a little less corporeal with each trip back in time. But every time he comes back, he's called back. There's his wife in the arms of this other fellow. It turns out that uh, someone else calls out to him um, and he goes through the wall. He's become quite incorporeal now and meets the person who was the most famous uh, UU professor concerned with time, someone who died in 1975, and these events take place in 1980, which is, of course, 17 years, um, well, 22 years after the date of publication of the story. This fellow says, no, he didn't die in 1975. He just disappeared because with every trip, you go back in time and you can change your own time, but you can't change other people's time. Having learned this, Henry Hessel goes back um, and finds that this fellow, Israel Nock, Lennox, had also killed Mohammed. So these are two <laughs> men who killed Mohammed. And he goes back, Henry, trying again and again to, to get rid of things, as, as Israel had apparently done. Um, always to no effect, because it turns out that time is only on uh, in everybody's individual timeline. So that... At the end, he has not succeeded at all, but he has learned that, you know, we can keep meeting each other because now we're no longer travelers, Henry. This is what Israel tells him. We've become the spaghetti sauce. Spaghetti sauce? Yes, because each timeline is like a strand of spaghetti, and they are now the sauce. You and I can visit any strand we like because we've destroyed ourselves. I don't understand, the narrator continues at the end, and now we realize that the narrator, in fact, all along has been Israel Lennox. Mm -hmm. When a man changes the past, he only affects his own past, no one else's. The past is like memory. When you erase a man's memory, you wipe him out, but you don't wipe out anybody else. You and I have erased our past. The individual worlds of the others go on. But we have ceased to exist. He paused significantly. 
what do you mean cease to exist? This is Henry responding to the narrator. With each act of destruction, we dissolved a little. Now we're all gone. We've committed chronocide. We're ghosts. I hope Mrs. Hassel will be very happy with Mr. Murphy. Now let's go over to the Académie. Ampère is telling a great story about Ludwig Boltzmann. <laughs> so, um, if you those both guys are mentioned early on, Ampere and Boltzmann, but uh, <laughs> in our chronology, uh, they are not contemporaneous. Uh, Boltzmann was born in 1844. Ampere died in 1836. So uh, that implies that they also are <laughs> ghosts in the machine, as it were. They are um, time travelers who have disappeared themselves. Uh, so I had an expectation when I was starting to read this, and it was like, this story is not going anywhere I thought it would go. Um, but uh, it, you know, upon second reading, I can see all the things that I missed on the first reading, like the fact that the narrator sneaks up on you. Um, on the first column of the first page... Um, we get a hint. It says, now the patient reader is too familiar with a conventional mad professor. Um, so this is a meta thing. And it's funny, I, I was mentioning that I had just finished reading um, a John Wyndham novel. And uh, in that novel, uh, which is called The Midwich Cuckoos, he, uh, he does the same thing. He references this, the tropes of science fiction. He says, well... If this were a science fiction novel, <laughs> mm -hmm. which it is, um, we would expect a mad professor, or in that case it was a mad scientist and his beautiful daughter, <laughs> to show up. And that never shows up in that novel other than to say, hey, look, this is a science fiction novel that has a mad scientist and a beautiful daughter, but they're just meta characters in uh, the story that is otherwise a sort of a straight-up novel, which is a science fiction novel. So that's what's going on here. We, we, at another point in the story, we would, we're told, oh, the reader will now realize that you're reading a science fiction story, a time travel story, and it is not the kind of time travel story where you go back in time and do this or that. This is a unique kind of science fiction story, as in uh, it doesn't have the effect of going back and changing history or being unable to change history uh, or unable to affect history or only to affect history to make it the history that we have. None of the other tropes of science fiction time travel stories uh, are in here that I can tell except as to say they're not in here. And so even going back to the title, when I'd heard of this story, I always remembered it as the man who murdered Mohammed. And I think I've even heard other people say that. But no, it is the men who murdered Mohammed, and it isn't that there was two guys holding one knife. It's they go back in time at, <laughs> in their own timelines, their own uh, history on the planet Earth and prehistory on the planet Earth, and they delete them from their own prehistory. But it doesn't affect anybody else. That's a very different idea. It is. And it is, as you say, it's a meta story. But it, it, in a way, these things have always been meta stories. Indeed. Um, in, in The Time Machine, 1895, which is the first novel to establish the notion of time travel 
freely going back and forth as opposed to just going to sleep and waking up years later like uh, Rip Van Winkle or having a dream um, like the Christmas Carol, but really just going back and forth. It first appears as the Chronic Argonauts in 1888, but as an achieved novel in 1895. In that novel, the time traveler, H.G. Wells' time traveler, um, in chapter one demonstrates his time machine and it, it grays out and disappears forever. Um, then, in, starting in chapter two, the time traveler goes. And at some point, he comes back and tells his dinner companions in Victorian England about his trip. And he says um, – to their, they seem incredulous about his trip to 802-701 AD. And he says to them, say this is just a story. Say that I just dreamed it up in the laboratory. Taking it as a story, what do you make of it? So right away, what we have there is self-reflexivity. It is clearly a story. H.G. <laughs> Wells' novel. And yet the character in it is saying, make believe it's a story, which, of course, implies that it isn't a story. So we have that that self-reflexive moment, which is always to make a reality claim for the narrative world. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is happening here. It's saying all of those other stories, all of those other time travel stories, they all have their own um, their own tropes. And you're used to seeing them. And if this were a time travel story, you'd see it. But it's not. It's a reality claim for what's going on here. And in fact, that's what he says, that um, what he succeeded in doing was making those events unreal for himself. So it's the reality of the narrative world, the narrative world being Henry Hassel's narrative world. And this is... This is a, a constant, beautiful thing that runs throughout, throughout this story. For instance, um, there is a place where when uh, Henry and uh, Israel are first getting to know each other, Israel talks about how he is, he's attenuated, he's become spaghetti sauce, uh, because he also was time traveling. He also tried to kill Muhammad. He says, so listen, um, what about power? No, never mind. The power input, Henry, on my first trip into the past, I visited the Pleistocene. I was mm -hmm. eager to photograph the mastodon, the giant ground sloth, and the saber-toothed tiger. While I was backing up to get a mastodon fully in the field of view at f6.3 at one hundredth of a second, or on the LVS scale, never mind the LVS scale, he said, while I was backing up, I inadvertently trampled and killed a small Pleistocene insect. Aha, said Hassel. <laughs> I was terrified by the incident. I had visions of returning to my world to find it completely changed as a result of this single death. Now, there are two terrific things about that passage, Jesse. One is, and I'm sure you see them both. Mm -hmm. One is what Israel is doing. Another mad scientist is giving a hyper-technical, you know, I was doing it at F6.3 at one, yeah. you know, and that was, right. So he's just like Henry. He's just like all those people we saw in the, or introduced to us in the beginning. The second thing is, this is a 1958 publication clearly alluding to Ray Bradbury's Sound of Thunder mm -hmm. from 1952, yep. which, from which we get the so-called butterfly effect, mm -hmm. right? So Bester knows what he's doing. He doesn't have Israel Lennox talk about one of these stories, and so, but he, in fact, lives it. <laughs> so the patient reader, as Lennox refers to him, 
can see all this going on. And as you have said, this becomes so much richer on second reading. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of those little things, um, this Israel Lennox character who we eventually meet, uh, even though he's been narrating the story for us for a while, um, we get his birth and death dates, um, and it says 1913 to 1975. And then we find out, no, I didn't die in 1975. I disappeared. Quite, quite a difference, right? But we get that for a number of characters throughout the story, you know, most of them r- real people. Uh, well, guess what year uh, Alfred Bester was born? Nineteen <laughs> thirteen, <Gosh>. right? <laughs> right. Um, so he's playing a very cute game. Um, it's a very meta story. It was it, it, Alfred Bester's stories are few and far between after a certain point in his career. He he wasn't a you know massive novelist. He had a lot of uh, other jobs, including editor at Rogue. Uh, which was sort of competitor for Playboy, and he had a holiday magazine editorship, which basically involved him taking vacations and writing about those vacations. And he he wrote all sorts of he wrote comic books, and he wrote for CBS Radio Mystery Theater, and he is very much this character. He is these people. He, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure most of these uh, these math things that I do recognize are pretty legit <laughs> from what I can tell. Like the F slash 63, 6.3 at one one hundredth of a second. That's real camera stuff. I'm not a camera expert, but that's real camera stuff. Um, one of the things that is true about Alfred Bester is that he didn't know uh, what to do with his life because he just kept going to university and he couldn't decide what he wanted to do. He Maybe he's going to be a lawyer. Maybe he's going to be a doctor. His parents are worried about him. And he just sort of fell into science fiction writing and writing in general. And, you know, he just kept writing and writing and writing. And he has this sort of magpie sensibility that (laughs) uh, the way uh, they asked, there's a great interview uh, with him uh, from 1976 at a Worldcon convention. And you get to spend an hour listening to Alfred Bester smoke and talk. And, he, you know, they start with a standard question, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> His answer is, from the compost. <laughs> <laughs> that is, you know, all this stuff falls into your life and it just sort of, you know, piles up. And, you know, it's fertile. It's very fertile. And, and he talks about how any little thing can get him to wondering and once you're once you're a bit of a wanderer and you have a job as a writer, it's writing all the time. And so we don't seem to have a massive, massive output from him in science fiction, but he wrote a lot, and it just isn't all in that genre. He wrote like a lot of comics, and he wrote a lot of. Uh, he was an editor, and he did a lot of you know columns and and scripts and a lot of the stuff never got sold and you can see that sort of magpie sensibility here with all of these real scientists and these real people from history who are all thrown together (laughs) thrown together with a unique twist on an old science fiction trope very so go for it well, the, the the one modification I would offer to what you just said is that 
while it may well be that someone who is enormously prolific will turn out pieces that that aren't, you know, some aren't as good as others Mm -hmm. and some may not sell at all. This particular story I don't think of as thrown together. No, Um, no. In in fact, the 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 beginning up until up until we get to the discussion, the description of Henry Hassel and Unknown University, uh, the beginning is really a throwback into time. Then, since we have a story about Henry Hessel that is set in 1980, in a story that was published in 1958, um, um, we have uh, something that is into the future. And then the explanation of what happened takes us back again into the past. So the uses of these historical figures is not simply, uh, gee, what can I lay my hands on? In fact, Bester has clearly woven them together so that at the end, as as you pointed out, these characters, these mad scientists, weren't together in real, in our historical timeline, but they're together here. So the, the throwing them together might have simply been an act of uh, thought, you know, chance, whatever you happen to lay your hands on. Mm-hmm. But of the many, many things that Alfred Bescher had laid his intellectual hands on, he chose these to show what would happen if you put them together. And if you put them together, you get an idea of sanity and insanity as being a kind of two-edged sword that you pay for genius by having a unique way of looking at the world that really makes you mm. otherworldly. Mm-hmm. And Henry Hessel and Israel Lennox and those other people who were real people are somehow otherworldly. And indeed they are because Laplace and Guy Lussac and Ampère and Boltzmann they're alive to us right now. I studied all of them in physics and chemistry in college. They are still with us. And so there, this leads to a, a wonderful paradox, the same kind of paradox we've seen in straight time travel stories all the way from H.G. Wells down to the ones that are being referenced metalinguistically by this narrator and to this story itself. And that is, what is the nature of time? My boy, Israel says to Henry, time is entirely subjective. Well, and then, of course, that's true, Jesse, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes you wake up and it feels like an hour has passed. Sometimes you wake up and it feels like 10 minutes has passed. And and neither of them may be correct, right? Time is entirely subjective. It's a private matter, a personal experience. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as objective time. Well, you see that, of course, that doesn't follow from it being subjective. There is no such thing as objective time, just as there is no such thing as objective love or an objective soul. And so what we wind up with at the end, I think, is Henry and Israel having given up one kind of love. I mean, Henry has just walked away from his wonderful redheaded wife. This feminism in the story or the the role of women in the story is worth some notice. Um, They all function as objects here. Sadly, uh, the cleavage of the co-eds comes out prominently. Um, but but they have found each other. It's like a buddy movie. Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to go off and they will now share a time 
out of time. So the, the story leads us to believe that time is, as it is, a private matter. It is entirely subjective, but that's only how we understand it. It is also clearly objective, or there couldn't be such a thing as a time machine. And while we think that objective and subjective are inherently antithetical, this story suggests that objective and subjective can somehow be complementary. Mm-hmm. This is, in fact, what another French scientist or genius would have said, Voltaire. This is, in fact, a conte philosophique. This is a philosophical story. And therefore, I think, immune to the objection that these are rather cardboard characters, mm-hmm. because they are delightfully comic and they take us through some interesting literary history and some comparatively deep philosophizing. Mm-hmm. Or am I overreading this, No, Jesse? you got this right. There's a great line. I always look for this in novels uh, where they, they, they judge the novel that you're reading. They review their own book <laughs> with right. their line in their own book. Um, and the line here is, uh, genius is someone who travels to the truth by an unexpected path. Unfortunately, unexpected paths lead to disaster in everyday life. Um, so that's right. Um, but there's also <laughs> this uh, running thread, and I think it's it's pretty subtle because it's it's not something that we see much used anymore. But uh, you know the the phrase gab session. Uh, there's another sure. one uh, which is uh, it was a gas, and I know you have a book <laughs> that's about <laughs> that. Um, the ideal gas is mentioned more than one time in here. And we've got a guy who uses an ideal gas to create a balloon that allows him to become the world's first aeronaut. We have the guy who told how that is possible. And we have two guys who are gaslit by (laughs) their experiences, one after the other. Um, And one who narrates the experience of uh, both of them in a certain sense. At the end of which, uh, you have to say, this story is quite a gas. <laughs> that That's idea, terrific. that idea of the ideal gas is when you go to a conference and hear a couple of crazy uh, professors talking about their crazy ideas, and you come away um, thinking, well, they probably don't manage their own uh, marriages very well, but they certainly are entertaining in the classroom, in the academy. Indeed. So um, they stop at one place, they start in another. We want to listen because we know with people like this, they're the geniuses. They always say they have something more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.